0: Welcome to We Question and Learn. This is Tom Pies. Today, in the studio with me, Bill Jackson, President of United Way of Erie County. Welcome again. It's been a while since you've been here. Yeah, thanks, Tom. really appreciate the opportunity. Well, we're sorry we don't have you on more often because um, the United Way in this community has been a mainstay, oh my gosh, over 100 years, right?
1: Yeah, since 1914, if you go back to our forebears, yeah. Back when we were founded in 1914, there were... Actually, 11 social service agencies that came together to actually begin what eventually became United Way. And that was the nonprofit community back then. Today, there are hundreds of nonprofits, and that's one of the reasons we've had to change. Well... And you and I are familiar with the Nonprofit partnership. I think we looked at one list, and it was over
0: 480 discrete groups, uh, certainly well over 300 nonprofits yep. in the community. Now, that could speak to the need. That also could speak to uh, the energy of the community that, that want to um, – the people in the community that want to help people. And this is what you do. Um, and I think over this last 100 years, particularly in
1: the last few years, uh, you've actually had to rebrand yourself a bit. Look at the world today versus 1914. Oh, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's completely different. and so our response to that has to be different. And we like to think of it as kind of three phases. You mentioned the software nomenclature. We talk about United Way 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0. And today is 3.0, but let me just yeah. take a minute to talk about 1.0.
0: Yeah.
1: <clears throat> 1.0 was the like roughly first hundred years. When our role was a fundraiser, we would go out into the community, raise as much money as we could, and distribute it to a small select group of nonprofit agencies. And we could talk all morning about how good the work that was done by those agencies. But our ward realized a few years ago that we weren't really solving the issues. We were just putting Band-Aids on the issues. Well, with
0: that, um, you, you were doing good work. Because the organization would not have survived 100 years had you not been. But what you're saying is that you discovered a need to change.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, because I didn't mean to interrupt you, but you did do good no. work. I well, yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, and then when we say we did good work, we worked with a number of agencies who did and continue to do wonderful work. The problem was that we realized it was something that we came to learn is called isolated impact. And what isolated impact means is we're helping 20 kids over here. 50 families over here, 72 adults over here, mm-hmm. but um, we're not really getting to the root issues. And so United Way 2.0, which was just a few years ago, was okay, we need to focus on the issue. Not the... See, whenever people would ask us what our goal was, they were asking about how much money we would raise. Well, that's not really the goal. The goal's not the money. The goal is to make the community better, right? So we realized that we had to change our focus and so I think it was about 2012 that our board said, we've really got to land on an issue. And there was no question the issue was poverty. Um, you know, poverty is both the result and the cause of so many social ills. But people don't want to tackle it because I'll give you a couple of reasons A, it's so big. B, that's not my problem. C, oh, poverty. You want to see poverty? Let's go to Africa. We don't have poverty, you
0: know. Or even Appalachia. Oh, even Appalachia. And and, and Appalachia is just a touch on our border here.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, we have – but we had to take it on. And so that's when United Way 3.0 came along. And that was just a couple of years ago when we put a stake in the ground, and we actually said out loud, we're on a mission to crush poverty. And that's kind of bold. But it was also exhilarating for our staff and our board because we said, that's what we're in business for. And not just us. There are many people and organizations. This is not a United Way thing. This is a community thing. Mm. Um, but, but we said, you know what, let's just, let's just tackle this and say we can do something about it because we can. And we'll talk, I'm sure, about some of the things that we're doing that are proven to reduce poverty. Um, but we transformed ourselves from a fundraiser to a social impact organization which i know it's kind of jargon mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but when you think about it for a minute that that really focuses the difference between how much money did you raise versus are we changing community conditions and um, i actually have a very short quote it's one sentence uh... but this is from the guy that runs the united way in fort worth texas uh, his name is td Smyers. i don't know what td stands for i've never met mm-hmm. the gentleman <laughs> uh... but but Everything I want to say from here on in is based on this. He says, central to our beliefs, we know it is time to measure our results not by the number of people we've helped, but by the number of people who no longer need help. That
0: says what you said before in a very succinct
1: way. Yeah, Yeah. I was happy to stumble upon that quote, um, and I think people get it. Yeah, it's what you do
0: and what you've accomplished. So the old days of the big thermometers and a lot of nonprofits did that. Right. They still put the... Yeah. Up on the wall. Well, nothing wrong with that.
1: No, no make no mistake.
0: We it, still have to raise the money. It sets the goal, <laughs> we, sure. Know. But now, what you'd like people to do—if I'm hearing you right—you want people, you would like people to understand that the money will be used for.
1: Yeah, I think eliminating you know, poverty. I, I think in, in the you know 20, 25 years ago, uh, United Way's message was basically trust us, we do good things. And you do. Oh, it was true. It was true. true, But people today need to understand, well, exactly what are you doing? How are you doing it? Mm -hmm. Um, And I was just talking to a group the other day, and I said, you know, it used to be that all we did was write checks, and we never were invited to meetings to actually discuss the issues because that wasn't part of our role. Today, we're actually convening those meetings. We're the ones that are bringing people together to say, how are we going to address these things?
0: that's commendable now let me interject something here yeah it's not just you oh no you have a whole staff let's start with the pyramid um (laughs) you you run a great organization you've been the president for how long now wow i'm i lost track a few years see you lost track i did too you grew up there well i've i've I've
1: worked there for 23 years i've been a president since 2010 so whatever that matter whatever it comes down to yeah. yeah
0: 20 years for that and and uh, so you're well entrenched and you completely understand uh, the organization and
1: the community. Who
0: helps you there? What uh, What does your office look like? I think people would like to know.
1: Sure. Well, we uh, it's a small office, just 15 uh, full-time staff. Um, and I need, I mean, they do the work. My job is to make sure they have what they need to do the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I have to say that it's it's they're a completely dedicated group, but... Um, it's a whole new world. It's a different way of raising money. For example, the United Way was built on the workplace campaign. People would give, you know, a dollar out of their paycheck every week and it added up to millions of dollars. And that still exists, but it's kind of been declining, not just here in Erie, but everywhere. It's just a different environment. So we need to find different ways of raising revenue, and we have. Uh, we are, you know, we weren't a kind of organization before that could actually write grants because you weren't going to get grant money to an organization that just spread it out all over the place. You need very specific things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I will tell you that there are two uh, initiatives that we've started that have garnered great support and new sources of uh, funding. The first one was the Imagination Library, which is our free book pro- program for kids under the age of five. They get a free—it's uh, a brand new book, age appropriate. So, all right, so a five-year-old doesn't get what a one-year-old gets. Uh, brand new and it's mailed to their home in their uh, child's name and we have over 9,000 children in Erie County registered for this program which is about 60 percent of all of the children under the age of five and this is a critical program because literacy is a key to education and education is the key to ending the cycle of poverty so everything I'm going to say from now on is going to really talk about education this Uh, had
0: a good sponsor behind it as well a national sponsor do- well, well,
1: Dolly Parton started the program. She started. Okay. Yeah, but she doesn't financially support it. No. Every dollar so that so she was like the icon motivator. Funder, yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 did great. Her foundation does great. Continues to do great work to make this program possible. Okay. But not financially. It's all raised locally. It's all locally, yeah. Uh, but we actually commissioned uh, a group of researchers at Penn State Barron to study this because. We were getting comments from local folks that said, well, it's nice that books are getting into the homes, but are they actually doing anything? Like, is anybody reading to them or whatever? Mm -hmm. And long story short, the research showed that, yes, it's making a difference. Children in Erie County, Pennsylvania, receiving these books when they enter kindergarten are better prepared with their literacy skills than children who did not receive those books. So we know that's making a difference. And it's attracting folks to donate. The second thing I want to talk about is community schools. Uh, community schools is a is a huge concept. Uh, it, we didn't invent it. Uh, it's been around for a while. In fact, it was actually our board of directors, when I was talking about United Way 2.0 and 3.0, mm-hmm. community schools w- was the thing that made that difference because we found this was an um, initiative. It's not a program. It's just a, it's a concept. It's a framework where... The fact of the matter is children come to school with so many barriers, especially in low-income areas, but, frankly, everywhere. Um, And what we found – and, by the way, my daughter teaches fourth grade in a public school in Texas, and so I know these things intimately from the things she's told me. Uh She barely has time to teach because she's got to deal with issues that these children bring bring to the Mm – and principals, they become social workers, which is not what they were trained for. Mm -hmm. The community school concepts brings these kinds of social supports into the school, so the teachers can teach, principals can you know run the school, and we have agencies and organizations and people that that come into the school and deliver. You have kids coming to school with issues of trauma, hunger, health issues, etc. I mean, we've actually brought literally brought dentists into schools in the school building, and these aren't just exams; they actually do restorative care, just as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, children who um, don't have the proper clothing, and they come and they're embarrassed to come to school. Well, you know, we have a clothing pantry, and so that we can provide them. When I say we, it's not United this Way. Is it's
0: reminiscent of the stories you hear from the twenties.
1: Oh it, well, it goes post World War.
0: I, it goes way back to our stories. Yeah, yeah. And to st- what you're saying is this still exists in our communities. It obviously does. But sure, just so the listeners understand, right, that a huge percentage of our community. Do you – it's a, a tough number it's to a very, to.
1: And it's not just in the city. It's also in, in the county areas. It's I mean, sometimes area. people think that, yeah. you know, poverty is like an urban Erie issue. It's not. It's a Erie County issue. Yeah, yeah there's some there's, – it's and more concentrated. you don't concentrated. see it because
0: you're not driving everywhere every day to see it. You well, see sure. it where you drive or where you walk or whatever. Yeah. And you folks have studied this. You understand it. And you proactively created this program, the community schools.
1: This is in the schools, though. It's, it's actually right in the schools. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, it's not. we are in uh, actually 10 schools now, eight in the city, and also Elk uh, Valley Elementary in Girard and Iroquois Elementary. And we, we envision that one day all schools, elementary, middle, high schools, will be community schools, but it's going to take way more resources than United Way alone can bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a vision, and we're encouraged that there's a lot of activity at the state level uh, to support this. That's phenomenal. So you're
0: ten schools.
1: Yeah, way faster than we
0: thought it would happen. That's that's a little scary to, um, to understand that the problem has exacerbated itself to that point. Actually, that many children are affected.
1: Uh, you it's know, hard. yeah, it's sad. Uh, it used to be when I okay, I'm sixty years old, so I can remember the days when chewing gum in the halls was the main problem at yeah, school. Yeah, right on the back
0: of the desk, right. You know,
1: <laughs> and. Today, it is so much, and it's, again, it's everywhere, and it's not just poverty. I mean, it's it's every demographic has issues. Um, we're, while we're focused on poverty, we're also focused on a better community, and that requires us to address the issue at the highest level. Oh, my
0: gosh, and you're talking about, um, well, you have cocaine, you have vaping, you have different things that are invading the schools, literally.
1: Well, and, like, bullying, which has come to an incredible level with social media. It's just out of control and so you really need to have what kids need is to have a caring adult in their life or and and more than one obviously but sometimes you know their parent like you said sometimes the parents are the problem yeah and well they probably suffered through it as well yeah yeah sure yeah you got 20 to 30 year old
0: parents that wasn't that long ago when they were School.
1: That's right. Yeah, And so many monster, many parents yeah. had a bad experience with school. And yeah. what we found, I'll tell you the very first outcome we found with community schools is, in, is a family engagement. Uh, parents actually showing up for the um, conferences and Meeting. the family yeah. nights, et cetera. Yeah. It's uh, been a very, that alone is... Important, but it's got to go way beyond that, and we have a plan for that. It's a terrible loop to be caught in because
0: if you're not improving the schools, you're not going to get good workers. If you don't have good workers, the children subsequently will suffer. So you're you're trying to break a, a hundred-year-old or more cycle. That's exactly right. Um, yeah, the Industrial Revolution, 1880s to today. It, it's it, so. What uh, in Erie? You have 10 community schools. Erie County, yeah. Erie County. What what's your efforts? What. How does this get organized? Do you have meetings? Do you call uh, companies? Do you call? Yeah. Parents?
1: I'm trying to get my handle around yeah. this
0: because it's a huge
1: project. All right. So the, very, the key to a community school is a person who is called a community school director. That person, uh, we call them a co-pilot to the uh, principal. So if you think of the principal dealing with the academic issues mm-hmm. and the community school director dealing with the social issues, that's mm-hmm. a good window. All right. But the community school director is not employed by the school district. I was just going to ask, how do you pay for this? Yeah. yeah. So the way, the way that it's paid for is we have solicited the corporate community um, to fund the salaries of the community school directors. Um, and that's a whole other story in itself. But I will tell you that um, it's been – very well received, because two reasons that I believe that companies would say, why would I want to put tens of thousands of dollars into this kind of an effort? One of them is this is going to improve your future workforce. I mean, the kids that are in school today are the people you're going to employ tomorrow. You want them to succeed in school. Secondly, and this was kind of a side benefit that we weren't sure that it was going to happen, but it has, is that our, our uh, corporations are looking for ways to, for their employees to be engaged in the community. And there are so many ways to volunteer at a community school if you're an employee of the corporate partner, Let we call them. And so you have, For I'll just give you one example, and I don't want to, mean to slight anybody, this is the one that popped into my head, is Lord Corporation, mm-hmm. who has a lot of, um, obviously, uh, STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, uh, math. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they can bring these mini labs into schools. And they used to just do it kind of haphazardly. And I don't mean that as a criticism. It was just there was no framework. Mm -hmm. And now they are the corporate partner at McKinley School. And they have very much aligned what they do with the curriculum at the school. So when they show up to do a particular STEM activity, those children have just learned about that that day or that week. And so it relates to them. And the employees who show up uh, and in fact, they were saying, I think they wear red shirts when they show up. And so oh, yeah. the kids know who they are. Yeah. And the kids just read them in the hall and say, hey, you know, thanks What's for coming. And, and these are all volunteers. And they're all volunteers. Okay. Um, How is it coming with the uh, princi- partner
0: with the principal uh, position? Uh, that is the co pilot. The co pilot. The,
1: the yeah. So um, it's. I think that the um, dynamic here is that the principal, obviously the principal's in charge of their building, Absolutely. there's no question, so when I say co-pilot you know the pilot's yeah. the principal, <laughs> you know, right? Yeah. Um, but the principals are so grateful to have someone on, on their right hand that is going to deal with all this stuff that they used to have to deal with mm-hmm. uh, and th- one of the things I think about is that you take a typical classroom you may have like 20 kids, you may have one or two that are acting out but They can disrupt the entire class. It disrupts the learning of the entire class. So it isn't just those two children that have problems. Now everybody has a challenge. But if you have somebody that you can turn that issue over to, when I say somebody, the community school director is not a counselor. They don't actually perform those services, but they bring in those services. So now we have counselors right in the schools, and and we had them before, but it wasn't as uh, organized as as it is now. Mm such that you can um, address the issues of the children that have their challenges while not disrupting the rest of the class. And so we aren't just helping two kids. We're helping 20 kids and multiply that by all the kids in the school. I was
0: just listening to an NPR podcast where they have, in the old days, the children would be literally pulled out of the classroom, left out of the school, sequestered home for two weeks. And this uh, program, similar to yours, said, no, we – Make them go home, calm down. We bring them in the next day and this energy that you're talking about mm-hmm. is put on this child. And subsequently, they have to come to school. Of course, now there's the resource to help them, which is what you're doing. You're providing the no, that Yeah,
1: that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, and it's not just behavioral issues. There are so many uh, barriers that children face. And sometimes we get asked, I mean, okay, education, what's the United Way got to do with education? Well, uh, what we have to do with it is addressing these barriers that aren't academic barriers. Like I said, the ideas yeah. of proper clothing, yeah. et cetera. What,
0: better, what a better place to do it than in the schools? You don't have to build new buildings. You right. have some resources there. You probably have a lot of enthusiastic teachers
1: who appreciate oh, this. Oh, without a doubt. I,
0: I, we need yeah. to talk about They probably love
1: this. I'm guessing. Oh, without a doubt. Um, And, you know, what I need to tell you is because, okay, so are we getting results? Um. We are, actually. And it's a little bit surprising because we're fairly early on. We're just two-plus years into this effort, and this is, we like to say it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But we have some schools in our community where 85% of the children in third grade are not reading at grade level. And that's important because up until the end of third grade, children are being taught how to read. After that, it's expected that they know how to read and comprehend. Well, if you have 85% of your children not at that level, that's where the disparity comes in. Those are the kids most likely to end up dropping out, etc.
0: Mm-hmm. And if they can't read, certainly math is the well, next
1: step. That becomes a at, horrid experience. It all depends on the ability to read. Yeah. So, all right, so that's the problem, right? Mm-hmm. So are we gonna fix this overnight? No, mm-hmm. it's gonna take years. We're not gonna go from 85% to 15 to 10 to zero <laughs> tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. But there's something that the state's starting to measure and what, it, what they're measuring is growth, meaning improvement. All right, we're, we're at this point today, 85%, and we're still not where we need to be, but are we getting better faster? And what we found is that in most of our community schools, the children are gaining ground faster than the state average, faster than the state expectation. And the principals in those schools attribute this to the community schools model, which to us is like gold. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, you're not going to get there overnight, but are you getting better, faster? And the answer is yes. Wonderful. How do you seven uh, you're here so you're disseminating <laughs> the information
0: right. and i know you do a good job because i know you go out and speak as often as you can right and we humbly suggest people invite you if you're concerned about your kids it'd be mm-hmm. good to to hear um this seems to be taking up a good portion of your time and to good effort and to good energy but there's, think, what about your other programs how, how are things going there
1: oh very well um we're focused on two things student success and family stability. And the reason why family stability is because if a child doesn't have a stable family, they're not going to be able to succeed in school, no matter how good the school is. So, one thing I really want to talk about is 211, mm-hmm. which is a phone number. It's like 911, except it's for social services, right? So, if your house is on fire, you call 911. Mm-hmm. But if you get an eviction notice, or your utility is about to be shut off, or your child's being bullied, or you have an aging parent, and you have no idea who to call. Just pick up the phone and call two one one, and you'll talk. Be talk. Uh, you'll be talking to an experienced. We call them uh, navigators, but um, it's a person on the other end who has a database at their fingertips of all of the social services available in Erie County, and frankly, it's statewide. Uh, so, if you have a parent in Harrisburg and you want to know what the Call two one one, and they can help you with someone in don't Harrisburg. Folks
0: have to fund this. Is just oh sure, yeah. You're working. Oh, this isn't just you're participating.
1: In oh it. no. No, this is dollar one day one. Yeah, this is yeah. this is big. Um, but here's the thing: we are so rich in these services in our community, but people don't know where to go. They are making six and seven phone calls, being shuttled back and forth. Just call two one one. Now, there's no guarantee that you're going to find help because there's no guarantee there is someone who can do that or that they have the resources. But at least you'll know the right answer, and you can go from there. Um, Back when we had the snowstorm, uh, snow apocalypse, uh, uh, and a a group of uh, volunteers um, came together, and they were uh, going to shovel out uh, seniors and folks with disabilities, Mm -hmm. uh, Team Rubicon. But um, how would people get connected? And the word got out, and we connected them with 201. So we had oh, I forget how many thousand phone calls that came through 201 that hooked people up with that resource. So it made it easy. Where does this facility exist? So sorry, um, I don't know. No, well the call center is actually in Venango County because it's part of a 13 county effort. We just pay for U- Erie County's portion. so okay. mm-hmm. I just want to make that clear. Mm-hmm. Um, but the persons in Venango, frankly, they could be located on the moon because there's a matter. database. It's, it's digital. It's yeah. digital. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: but our friends in the in Pittsburgh, the United Way down there, run a 201 call center that's state-of-the-art, and they actually supervise uh, the call center in Venango. So the good news is, again, we didn't have to invent it. We didn't have to learn how to run it. Uh, we just talked to that's our friends in Pittsburgh. That's a huge cost savings. Oh, if my gosh. You guess. had to build this
0: from scratch. Oh,
1: it would have been Two to three times the cost because we Easy, were considering yeah. it. And when yeah. we found out what the cost was, it was much more cost effective to um, take advantage of something that already exists. Well, we touched on two important topics that you were working on.
0: And let's summarize um, what's going on now. What 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 are your plans for the next
1: couple of years now? So um, we were just talking with our board of directors, and, uh, and I was uh, quoting Benjamin Franklin who said, mm-hmm. an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Yep. And so I think when you hear what we're going to be doing in the future, uh, keep that in mind because that's what it's about. It's about the most effective use of our resources to make a difference, not just for, again, this person or that family, but for our entire community. This has been a real education, but I see inviting you back (laughs) (laughs) and
0: covering the other nine questions on the reverse (laughs) side, uh, I I think people – appreciate what you said today i think they'll understand your goals they'll understand your efforts yeah. i think they, they always understood the fact that you need support that's that goes without saying sure. yep. but i think people do want to understand what are you doing with the money it's not just the money right it's how does the community get back something for their investment
1: And we're always happy to um, speak or ask one-on-one, call me up. uh, (laughs) And here's your chance to (laughs) let people know how to find you? Well, the best source of information uh, for us is on our website, unitedwayerie.org. Okay. Um, Unitedwayerrie.org. And you can find it all out there. Uh, Our phone number is 456-2937. And you can ask for Bill, and I'll be happy to talk to you. And I'm sure there's... 16 other people who will pick up the phone if they have to. <laughs>
0: you folks do an outstanding amount of work with a lean amount of payroll and energy.
1: Well, we have a lot of volunteers, and I should yeah, give a shout out. Say, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, that's the last topic because, um, as you know, WQLN survives on, on volunteers right. and the support of the community. But there's a lot of folks who give with their heart. So if right. someone wanted to help you, it's yeah or four five two two nine three seven and yeah. please real quickly volunteers are what percentage of your output? I mean they create oh
1: it's, they, it's beyond beyond measurement. But I yeah. I think if you want to talk about volunteers, uh, what I would suggest is because we have a, a separate website. It's called getconnectederie.com.
0: dot com. I was hoping you'd go
1: there. And that has uh, a lot of volunteer opportunities that have, may or may not have anything to do with United Way. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, most of them don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a it's a website that is a uh, – uh, there's a word and I'm missing it, That's right. it's, it's a go-to. <laughs> <place>. <laughs> Their go-to. It's, it's, a, a, go-to. A, it's a
0: great – really, it is. It's a great go-to place. Bill Jackson, President, United Way of Erie County. People can find you at unitedwayerie.org, and I hope they um, take a look at that website and understand all the energy you're putting back into this community. Thank Th- you for being here. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you very much.
2: I'm Michelle Martin. These days, it seems like just about everybody is choosing sides and doubling down on talking points. Here at NPR, we try to cut through the noise with meaningful and respectful discussions with people from all perspectives, backgrounds, and walks of life. Join the conversation every weekend on All
1: Things Considered from NPR News. Saturday and Sunday afternoons at 5 on WQLN Radio. Hi, this is Jeff Hanley, host of Jazz Happening Now. Each week we listen to some of the latest jazz recordings, and I think you'll be thrilled by what today's jazz musicians are doing and saying. The recording industry has changed, but the music is as alive and as vibrant as ever. The future of jazz is happening right now, if you just listen. And please do. Sunday night at 6 on WQLN Radio.
0: Welcome to Week Question and Learn. This is Tom Pies. We're celebrating our 15th year on the air with community leaders, educators, social activists. We've had a lot of fun over the last 15 years with many, many interesting and fascinating people. Today we're going to do something special. We're going to talk with Dr. Andrew Roth. And right now, he's the scholar in residence of the Jefferson Educational Society, From 2016 to 17, Dr. Roth served as the interim president of St. Bonaventure University, which is a lovely place, a great (laughs) campus, and a a renowned college uh, university. Um, Previously, Dr. Roth served as president of Notre Dame College. That was from 2003, right? Right. 2003 to 2014. Allegedly retiring at that date. I'm not real good at retiring. (laughs) No, we're not. Prior to that... His credentials include, uh, oh, part of Notre Dame. Uh, you were at John Carroll. I graduated from Graduate John Carroll a long time ago. So you were there, and the Case Western University, two fabulous Cleveland uh, universities, and, and then uh, rounding the bend back home, Gannon University, and back in my neck of the woods, the State University of New York at Buffalo. And I will not profess to say that I was part of that system <laughs> at the State University College, which was a teachers college and. You managed to graduate from uh, the bigger campus up the road, but we're proud to have you here. We're going to do a project. We're going to start off with a radio interview. In fact, we're going to do several radio interviews with Dr. Andrew Roth. Um, We're going to talk about uh, a topic, and we've preliminary uh preliminarily named this the american tapestry right and before before i go on we're going to have a little surprise to dr roth this program now the we question and learn program is now on npr one for folks that are interested in uh, visiting that website signing in and you're able to listen to these programs what's nice about that is there's programs from excuse me listeners from all over the country that go to that site and uh, are able to listen to great programs as this one This is a a project uh, you and I talked about. This is your project. This is something that you've been working on for how many years now? Oh, I think probably from
2: its uh, genesis, if you will, to use a fancy word. Yeah. Probably as long ago as three, four years ago, the the late summer uh, of 2016, during the presidential election of 2016, uh, my colleague at St. Bonaventure, who at some point in time is going to participate in this project with the two of us, Phil Payne in the History Department at St. Bonaventure. Uh, Phil is quite an accomplished historian. He's written several books, uh, Crash and Dead Last, which is his uh, study of the end of the Harding administration and uh, how the uh, the town of Marion, Ohio, adapted to that. In any event, Phil and I in 2016, uh, in that rather tumultuous, although in hindsight doesn't seem to be as tumultuous as events have subsequently become. But in the, uh, during that, that political season, we began talking about how it seems like Americans have forgotten their story, or maybe what we're discovering is there never really was a consensus about what is the American story. And as you and I talked last spring, uh, we, we began to realize now we got to tell you know t- time travel back to back to 2016 we began to realize that in a year or two 2018 there was the 50th anniversary of what people are beginning to realize was an apocal year in american history 1968 but the larger thing we we started thinking about is what is the american story is there an american story why should there be an american story Uh, For example, uh, I've given a number of talks on this. Uh, I I think this is a reasonable statement. It probably would not occur to an Englishman to ask, what does it mean to be English? Or what is the English story? But it may well, as we watch Brexit, occur to a Briton or a British person to ask him or herself What does it mean to be British, particularly as the Scots contemplate leaving the – not the EU, leaving the British Union, uh, the the Union of Great Britain? Uh, A Welshman may now ask that question, even after all these centuries. And certainly that question has arisen in Northern Ireland. So it's, it's not an idle question, and it's perhaps not unique to the United States. But, anyways, a kind of a long answer to your question is we we got interested in it then, and I have subsequently been doing a great deal of research on this topic and doing presentations, and brings us to today.
0: You were kind enough to share an outline, and as I look at this, this is going to be uh, probably forty or fifty episodes all told. about, uh, I don't know what about you're 40 cold. or 50 but. <laughs> well <laughs> if you number. if you if you put chapter headings on it there are a good number of important topics uh, you named it the American tapestry and you actually uh, recently did a series a heritage lecture series I believe at the Chautauqua Institution in July of this year 2019
2: yes I um, in July of 2019 at the Chautauqua Institution as part of their Rhodes Scholars program, and there's a pun for radio listeners not from the area, uh, it's R O A D S Rhodes, and it's uh-huh. the Chautauqua Institution's, I guess, version of a kind of elder hostel or senior college, uh, in which, uh, for a week to ten days, a, a group of people are there, and I gave five talks on four talks on 1968 and two talks on American tapestry, the the outcome of that. And uh, I think, to give Chautauqua a wee bit of a a mention, that next year in their Rhodes Scholars Program, I will be doing a week on this series you and I are now talking about called American Tapestry. And the title, and I I gave a lecture, uh, one of their heritage lectures. It uh, It was actually on Friday, July 5th, and there was thunderstorm and lightning Uh, and uh, the Hall of Philosophy is an open-air amphitheater. And I remember saying to um, John Schmitz, the archivist at at Chautauqua, who uh, manages the Heritage Series, that I said, you know, John, we should probably cancel. No one will come. And he goes, no, you don't understand Chautauquans. They'll be here. They probably won't be sitting on the lawn because (laughs) it's it's stormy. But they will be under the uh, pergola which is actually not a pergola, it's a solid roof. And goodness gracious, in the midst of uh, a real downpour, there were a couple of hundred (laughs) brave souls who actually showed up for the talk. So in any event, uh, in that talk, I I outlined kind of uh, what this series will be. And the the series that you and I are working on developing is called American Tapestry – There's always colons in academic speak. American Mm -hmm. Tapestry, We Tell Ourselves Stories. The subtitle comes from the very first line of Joan Didion's The White Album, to cite my source, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, for those people who are interested in revisiting the 1960s, probably the best book ever written on the 1960s if you want to get the actual psychodynamics of it, the, 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 the spirit. In any sense, you want to take the word spirit, the feel of the age is Joan Didion's The White Album. You wouldn't read her uh, to get actual dates and numbers and things like that, but if you want to get a feel for the psychodynamics of the era, read Joan Didion's The White Album. And um, in any event, in that, the very first paragraph of The White Album is uh, she talks about how we're storytellers. Humans are storytellers. And we tell ourselves stories in order to make sense of our experience. And that's kind of what we're doing with this American Tapestry series. What uh, Exploring what are the stories that Americans tell themselves to make sense of their experience of being Americans.
0: What was fascinating to me is the time frame. You... Literally, we're starting in, I believe, the original uh, date obviously would have been 1968 with a well, culmination. That was the launch point. And, uh, yeah, and the issue is, as time goes on and, of course, as politics get more intric- intricate as we watch and listen to television and radio, it's, it seems that 2020 would be a good culmination year for your story here uh, in a way I, because it, it offers perspective on what happened. That's a
2: really good observation, Tom. I think that's true. In part, what is happening now is we are seeing, and and I'm trying to you know, want to keep this nonpartisan to a certain extent, to the extent it's possible. Uh, What you're seeing right now today, uh, October, well, we're recording this on, I'm not sure about the air date, but we're recording it on October 2nd. Mm -hmm. Right now today, uh, you're seeing people asking themselves really fundamental questions about American values. I mean, what do we stand for? Who are we? Uh, and that's what this series is is really about. It's uh, exploring our self-understanding of who we are and
0: how we became who we are. As uh, we look at this, um, I hear all the things you're saying, and some of the things that you are, and I are going to research uh, is to obtain some actualities uh, from folks that were part of this great history and maybe intersperse them in the program. But I would like to talk for half a minute more about uh, how this all developed and and talk about uh, how you research these topics. Uh, I fortunately have an outline. This is extensive. To me, your outline would make a good uh, mini book, so to speak. Um, It's educational In some ways, I think, in in, in some ways, it it is. It is edgy, because I'm looking at topics that I had never thought about
2: before. It is, is in some ways, an outline of a book, and there's a a number of ways we can go with this. Yeah. So, the the series that um, we're embarking upon, and I've been working on uh, for these last three or four years, and actually uh, very focused, very, very, very focused on actually the American Tapestry series the last, oh, I don't know, this is October, the last the last year, certainly the last eight or nine months to a year, um, it, it really follows this kind of logic and I can, I can walk through this and then maybe we can go back and do a little deeper dive into each of the parts. Um, as I said, the, the genesis came out of the 2016 election and then it came out of the, uh, the deep study that we did in the program that I think we aired on April 7th, mm-hmm. uh, which was a recap of 1968 So any listener who wants to to hear that, they can get a kind of good snapshot of what we talked about in 1968. But the outgrowth of that is um, Smithsonian Magazine in January, February 1968, their cover story was 1968, the year America shattered. And excuse me on that date, it was January, February 2018, Mm -hmm. the 50th anniversary Mm -hmm. of 1968. And their cover story was 1968, the year America shattered. Well, the interesting question immediately arises, what shattered? Well, what shattered, as I said a couple minutes ago, was the consensus, or perhaps the discovery there never was a consensus, about what the American story is, or even if there is such a thing. Mm -hmm. And so we began, I began doing some research into that, and there are a number of people, uh, Joe Lepore, who we hope at some point perhaps to have the honor of interviewing with this series, Uh, She initially argued in a book called The Story of America that there is no American story, no one American story. But later in her book, These Truths, she says the story is the story of self-government. These truths taken directly from the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. And I think she's about 85% right. I think that's the biggest part of it, but there's more to it. And so I began to explore it, and I came up with the metaphor of American tapestry, Because it's actually, there are many American stories. But there are certain threads that repeat themselves, that come back more often. There are certain threads that are thicker, if you will, more prominent, the colors, if you will, to, to work out this extended metaphor, more vivid. Uh, and in a tapestry, which is different than simply weaving, the weft uh, is not seen in a tapestry. What you see is the weave, which is the design, but the weft that holds it together disappears. You don't really see that. Um, And I would argue that the weft, in fact, are these truths, the idea of America, equality, liberty, opportunity, or liberty, equality, opportunity. But those are the weft that holds it together but there are a lot of threads. And so we started to explore what those threads might be and came up with the metaphor of an American tapestry. And so if, if we look at you know, the outline of the series that we're talking about, uh, one of the very first episodes would be we tell ourselves stories, which would be just a conversation about what do we mean by storytellers? And I'll come back to that in a moment. And then when you talk about what do we mean by storytellers, you rather quickly get into, well, what does history mean? And history is, not to turn this into a highly technical discussion of historiography, but history is important. Uh, History is extremely important. Um, And who tells it and how they tell it's important. And those two go together. you know episode whatever one it turns out to be episode one or two we tell ourselves stories the fact that humans are storytellers and perhaps some of the most important stories they tell are the stories of their history Um, and history is what creates a culture you can't have a culture without some kind of articulated history of the culture Um, I suspect there's some people who might argue with me on that and I think I got I think the overwhelming evidence is on my side uh, that you know By definition, a culture is the values, attitudes, and beliefs of a given people. Uh, But how do they know what their values, attitudes, and beliefs are? Well, they're handed on from generation to generation. How are they handed on from generation to generation? Someone tells a story. And, of course, uh, as John Lewis Gaddis points out in the landscape of history, if you make the metaphor that history is a map, you can't make a ma- it can't have one-to-one correspondence to reality, just like you couldn't have a map that has a one-to-one correspondence to reality for one thing, then you'd have reality and you can't take that mm-hmm. with you. Right. So, so you, you need a map that is in some manner, shape, or form, perhaps this is not the right use of the word, but an ideogram that yeah. in an abstract sense describes And you know, and as long as it serves its base function, it enables you to get from point A to point B. It works as a map, even if it leaves a lot of details out. So anyway, that we'll talk about that in episode three. So, uh, you know, episode one is storytellers. Episode two, what is history? The word history comes from the Greek and it means inquiry. But it's intriguing that in English the word story is embedded in it. You know, we're not going to get into the etymology of the word, at least maybe not today. Maybe we will eventually. Um, And that leads then to the culture wars which erupted in 1968.
0: This is the fascinating.
2: And which Pat Buchanan famously declared that there is a religious war in America, a culture war for the soul of America. Pat Buchanan didn't declare that in 1968. He declared that at the 1992 Republican National Convention. But Pat Buchanan does have a connection to 1968. He was one of Richard Nixon's speechwriters, and so the culture wars, in many ways, are most easily understood. If you want, if you need a frame, it's to simply ask you: the culture wars are really an argument about whose story, what story describes us, whose story is the story of us, Uh, and that is as we live every day. uh, a contentious issue. It's not a settled issue in American history or American culture. It is a contentious issue. Uh, this might be as good a place as any to say, you know, what are, what is the American story, or what might it be? And there's some, you know, is it the story of those ideals I alluded to earlier, uh, the ideals embedded in our founding documents—liberty, equality, opportunity, freedom. Uh, as, a, as embedded in the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt's Four Freedoms, you know, those foundational documents. Is that our story? Or is it perhaps the story of all the times in our 250-plus-year history we failed to live up to our ideals, Uh, And one needs to be careful there, because that story frequently doesn't get told, or it gets, and the pun is intentional, whitewashed. But at the same time, as you tell that story, you have to be careful that it's not just some exercise in self-flagellation, because that serves no one any purpose. Because corollary to the story of all the times perhaps we didn't live up to our ideals is the story of the people who were initially excluded— which would be women, African-Americans, Native Americans. And at least initially, at least initially, almost every ethnic group that immigrated to America uh, was brutally discriminated against. But is it the story of how those discriminated against groups protested for their rights by appealing to the ideals? And in every instance, they did. And as we'll see eventually, and we get to these episodes, The women's movement to use the one immediately comes to mind the declaration of rights and sentiments at the uh, famous women's convention at seneca falls new york in 1848 Mm -hmm. the declaration of rights and sentiments precisely mimics or follows mimics is not the right word it doesn't give it the the uh, doesn't give it the seriousness it deserves that's not a good choice of a word on my part it it directly patterns itself after the Declaration of Independence, by saying we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal. And then just as the Declaration of Independence had a list of the abuses of King George III, the sentiments are a list of the abuses that men have allegedly rained down upon women and that they intend to redress. Or in African Americans, Martin Luther King's last speech, uh, when he famously said in the last speech, just live up to what you said on paper. Just live up to what you said on paper is all we're asking. Uh, that the greatness of America is the right to protest for rights. And perhaps when we get to that episode, we'll play that clip of that actual speech. Uh, and to this day, Native Americans uh, go back to the treaties that they, bound, that they signed. And uh, those of us who travel between Erie and Buffalo uh, will know that once on the Seneca Nation uh, portion of the New York Thruway, there was once, I don't think it's there now. I was on that road last week. But there was a sign that says, uh, the wind is still blowing, the rivers are still flowing, the grass is still growing. Honor Indian treaties. And that line comes explicitly from almost every treaty between the federal government and its predecessors and the various and sundry state governments and their predecessors, territories, and Native American groups was saying that whatever the given treaties agreement was will be binding as long as the wind blows and the rivers flow and the grass grows. And so is the story not just all the times we failed to live up to our ideals, but is it maybe more... positively and constructively and admirably and heroically that those people who had been uh, excluded as they made their arguments for inclusion appealed to American ideals? Or is it the story of uh, American business and the ancient uh, split between Hamiltonian economics and Jeffersonian agrarianism? And those are two elaborate phrases that I suspect, given the, the audience um, for public radio, most people would have some idea of what those two mean. But uh, uh, to be less pedantic for a moment, maybe I'll just explain that. You know, Thomas Jefferson envisioned a country of small yeoman farmers and small shopkeepers living in small villages. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, in his report on manufacturers and his report on banking uh, envisioned. I mean, it truly was visionary because none of this existed in 1790 when Hamilton wrote these uh, studies. He envisioned a world of manufacturing, large industrial complexes fueled by financial. Wi- well, I'm not going to say wizardry. He was accused of financial wizardry, but fi- <laughs> but but fueled by financial acumen um, and banks. And one of the conflicts in American culture is we like to tell ourselves, even if we don't know the history and would have no idea what the phrase Jeffersonian agrarianism means, Jeffersonian agrarianism means, we like to think of ourselves in some ways as Jeffersonians. You know, we're small town folks. Yes. But the facts of the matter are we live in Alexander Hamilton's world. And there's a tension there, and that that gets at the tension. Or, you know, is it the tale, the story of white Christian ethno-nationalism, which is an old, old thread, maybe, maybe the original thread to give, to be accurate, you know, that it was a country founded by white men for white men, and you read their documents, they really didn't mince words about that. And we have to be careful not to be guilty of the, the sin of presentism, of judging the past by our terms. Uh, the, the past should be judged to a large extent on its own terms. But you go back and read the documents, uh, the Citizenship Naturalization Act of seventeen nine ninety explicitly said it was reserved to people who were white and excluded uh, blacks, Native Americans, indentured servants, slaves, etc. It did include women, uh, but elsewhere it explicitly defined, I think in the 14th Amendment, uh, due process of law was for white males, no, it, males. And so, and of course the franchise. Or is it none of those things? Or is it something else? Or is it some, some to use a contemporary phrase, some mashup of all of that? And so maybe we could uh, call our series instead of American history, American mashup, although I'm not entirely sure the connotation is what we want. Yeah. But uh, the, the current uh, media notion of a, uh, uh, or I guess that's a DJ notion of a mashup of a lot of different kinds of threads of music. But anyways, American tapestry is all those things. And so the first couple of episodes will go through what do we mean when we say we're storytellers, what, are we, what is history? Uh, That's a big topic, I mean, to try to deal with in 40 minutes, and we'll be talking with some historians about that. And then the the culture wars are, uh, from that menu that I just outlined, plus any additions that other people can suggest, whose story? And then we'll get into uh, how all of this bubbled over. Uh, One of the episodes, we'll take a look at a very interesting question that was asked to me by someone when I was uh, doing interviews researching for this. Uh, why did the 60s happen? You know, why did what is meant culturally, not, not just you know, literally, cl- calendrically, if there is such a word, the 1960s, but why did the 60s happen? Why did the cultural phenomenon known as the 60s happen? Why did it happen when it happened? Why didn't it happen in the 50s? Or why didn't it happen 20 or 30 years later? And that's actually a fascinating question uh, it's a very interesting question, and we'll be exploring that with a number of folks. And that, of course, takes us to the hinge year of 1968, the presidential election of 1968, the age of protest, the counterculture, music, the culture wars, and the redux. And then we get into the major threads of the American story, uh, freedom story at home, freedom's fault lines, we just touched on that, Hamiltonian economics, and most importantly, I think maybe, maybe the most important thread, or one of the two most important threads in the American tapestry is the immigrant's tale. Uh, whenever I give this talk publicly, I always point out to the audience, unless you happen to be descended from a Native American, an indigenous person, everyone in the audience is descended from an immigrant. Some sooner, some later some willing, some unwilling, but everybody is descended from someone who came from somewhere else. And maybe a big, big part of the American story is we're still, we think we're an old culture at 250 years, but 250 years in the grand sweep of history is nothing. Uh, We're still perhaps sorting out what all of that means Mm -hmm. and, and and what happens. So that's, I guess I went on longer than you went, but uh, uh, that's what we're going to be looking at in American tapestry. We tell
0: ourselves stories. There's many more chapters, and we'll have to stop now in this program. Dr. Roth, Andrew Roth, thank you so much for your visit today to WQ. Thank you, Tom. Thank you.